amazing. It's called Tabla Pro. It's an app, obviously. Okay, this is from the Isopanishad. You know we're having an Isopanishad series in January, right? The invocation to the Isopanishad is Om Purnam Ada Purnam Idam.
finding the off switch is often the hardest part of the phone. Hi. Okay, thank you. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to a very special gathering here at Sunset Gita. We have a great special guest this evening. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to our special guest, Lisa. <laughs> Would you please join me in welcoming Chau Chandra to Sunset Gita? Thank you for joining us this evening. <laughs> I want to introduce Charutandra to you, and then um, I get the great privilege of having the opportunity to ask Charu anything I want, because I'm a teacher. But then we're going to open this up, and I'm going to ask Charu to please just uh, give us the great benefit of hearing from him in his own words, and then... Uh, We'll see where it takes us. How's that? Shauru Chandra, I first of all want to say that if you, uh, as I'm sure you will, want to have more of his company, you can find him at Pure Yoga, up on, where is that? On east, east, west. east side, yeah. the 70s? 86. 86. Shauru is also very sought-after personal instructor, so he's always very busy, which is what makes this such a great opportunity, because I, I wait for a, a long time to finally get to introduce you to him. Um, John, you've been a student of Charu's, yes, for a long time now? Yes, I've been a teacher. Ah, okay, All right, wonderful. Michael, can you bring me some tissues, please? Yeah, are you teaching at the Bhakti Center for all now that you're back? I will. I'm just hard until I just got back into the country. So right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Eventually, yes. This Sunday morning? Sunday mornings, yeah. May I, can I tell them why you've been away? Yeah. Yes, it's all right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Chara recently got married. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a beautiful, beautiful rooftop ceremony with nature in attendance. You know, gentle drizzle of rain, and afraid, like, a, like a rainforest. It's a beautiful I've, I've lived here for three years, and it's the first time I recall there was a tornado. <laughs> the tornado? Well, yeah. It was like a month. Twister. Twister. <laughs> Okay, nature was in full attendance, full display that evening. Charu uh, comes from Belize, a very beautiful part of the world. And uh, what I find fascinating, of course, everyone's story is fascinating. <laughs> Charu's story has a particular dimension to it. He. Uh, came out, if, I, if I'm describing this properly, shall we say, a kind of rough-and-tumble background, hard-scrabble kind of upbringing. And uh, from what he's described to my students at Hofstra University, 
Yoga was his way out of that world. And uh, I'm going to ask you to describe for us something about where you went. I know it was in India, but who you studied with and what that was like for you and what the conditions were like. But after studying there, Charu became uh, quite insightful about yoga and has for many years now been a beloved teacher in Hong Kong and then in California. Yes? And now Australia. Australia and now settling here in New York. And there were people at the wedding from all over the world. Students and, and admirers had come from all over the place to, to celebrate Cho's wedding. So it was a beautiful thing, really wonderful thing to see. So Charu Chandra, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us this evening. And um, if it's okay, may I just begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about what that was like, that, that call to yoga and to go to India. What happened there and, and what was that like for you? Where did you go and what did you see and what did you do? <laughs> Good evening to everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Actually, I've meant to come here for the last three years, but on Tuesday nights I normally teach, so sometimes I mean, when it's the big, uh, when Ramanath Swami came, I came a couple of times, first I'm here. Thank you so much, Joshua, for inviting me. I, uh, yeah, I grew up in Belize, anyone been to Belize before? No one, okay. It's a small little country just underneath the Yucatan Peninsula. And it's a beautiful country. It has the Mayans are there, the Mayan ruins. You have the, the Chinese are there, the East Indians are there, the Africans are there. So you have a mesh of all kind of cultures. And I just so happened to grow up in the city, and the city is beautiful, actually. But I just happened to be up in one of the most <laughs> toughest part of the city, where it came to a point where I remember I was a teenager, and it came to a point that some days you would get up and you would hope that you're not a victim of a drive-by shooting. The thing is, TV didn't come to our country until 1981. So when the television came, all the kids just started to watch the violent movies. So if the kids didn't go to school, then the other, the other alternative is to imitate what's on the TV. So <laughs> it just so happened that it got to a point where if you wear, was it the red and blue, was it there? Crips and the blood. It was something from the TV that manifested in the city. So if you had blue, you couldn't go one part of the city. If you wear red, you couldn't go to the other part of the city. So, and then I was a soccer player. and Most of my friends on the, on the soccer team were like me. They were from 
we didn't grow up with our parents because I didn't grow up with my mom or dad and or they it's just a relative but at the same time so so my team was filled with most were friends from broken families or <laughs> no just surviving but then I was in school and in school I had my other friends who had mom and dad and you know so I had two sets of friends but these friends from the soccer pitch they eventually got caught up with the gangs because there's not an alternative for them. And there are some times when, yeah, you drive by or you, you, do, you wouldn't know if you could, you would live to see the next day, right? Got really tough in one part of the city. And, but I was good in school, so then I got a, I got a scholarship to go to a school on the outskirts of the city. And as I went there my first year, I ran into a guy who was at my, he was at, in class and he was always like different into meditation. I never seen that before, like what's happening here? So I befriended him and he lived in the, con in the city and right next to his house was this, yogi who was visiting from the Himalayas. So he asked me, you know, we, we started to do wrestling. We were wrestling before me and this friend and this yogi asked us, we would see this yogi stretching and he invited us to come and stretch with him. We thought it was just stretching. We didn't call it yoga, right? It was stretching before we would train. But as we were starting to learn stretching and bending, he started to teach us breathing exercises, started to teach us meditation, something different. Then he started to teach us Bhagavad Gita. And then he gives me, but he was only there for like four months. And before he left, he gave us the, the, connect, the contact if we ever wanted to further it to go to India. Because he was a yogi, but he was also... He was from the Himalayas and he was one of the yogis who, he was searching for the, the greenest herb in the Caribbean. He was just moving around. Where was the greenest herb, right? So he left and then, but me and my friend, by the time he left, me and my friend, my best friend, we became vegetarians, we doing yoga. Those days we were doing three times a day. How old were you at that time? I was 15. And we were doing three hours of yoga every, six hours actually, three in the morning, three in the evening. That was my practice. And a lot of meditation and me and my friend, we did that for like a year. And then we both stopped school. And then when I stopped school, like all my other friends now were thinking, man, he's weird. <laughs> He doesn't play soccer anymore. He doesn't chill out with us anymore. He, you know, he doesn't eat meat. What's going on? My family thought I was crazy. And I remember part of yogi, like before the yogi left, he, like, he taught us the loincloth, how we should wear the yogi loincloth. And I was living at some of my cousins, and in the room there were three of us, so I couldn't practice there. So I would go practice. The only place in, that, in the morning time for one to practice meditation was there bathroom. <laughs> so I'd go into the bathroom and remember this is a culture where yoga is foreign and part of yoga is chanting. So I'd go into the bathroom doing my chanting in my loincloth 
So then one of my cousins came in and that freaked her out and she went and one of my other cousins was Mr. Belize, big muscles, everything. So they called him to kind of like deprogram my brain, right? So he came and, they, and the word went out, Charu is getting crazy. He's in the bathroom chanting naked. <laughs> that was, yeah, it was so different. Remember, no one in my culture does yoga. No one in my culture is a vegetarian. No one in my culture is chanting. What's that? I became the antichrist. You know, the, the devil personified because I didn't go to church. I didn't do that. You know, it wasn't having to do with the Bible. It was like, what? So anyway... I survived all that, and me and my friend, we stopped school, and we, my friend, father lived in L.A., so we went to L.A. first, and then from L.A., we went to India, and then we were in Calcutta with the contact that we had, and for about two months, and then after that, the teacher there, invited us to their guru up into the Himalayas. So I went and lived into the Himalayas. And when I got there, it was very cold. I'm from the Caribbean. <laughs> it's freezing cold. And, but then I was fascinated at the same time because I would see yogis, common places, sleeping on the bed of nails, yogis with their, doing the headstand, right? Headstand, shisha. You wouldn't see their head. Their head was buried in the sand. So you only saw this, this part of so far out, mystical stuff. I mean, it's like, wait, wait. So I was fascinated by that, a teenager, but so I think that, you know, and I must admit, there were times in my mind I think, should I go back home, go back to school? There was no oven, no refrigeration, so it was, I remember I got there, I was thinking, because we came from Calcutta, right? And in Calcutta, I got addicted to all the Indian sweets, the, the gulab jamins and the, you know, and got to the mountains and I remember asking, so where's the food? Yeah, I remember my teacher up there said, oh, we're yogis, we, we eat off the earth. And I'm thinking, eat off the earth? What does that mean? I can't put that one on. And then I got to understand the yogis up there, they just do a lot of raw. That's basically how they live. So that was a new adventure, right? Coming from Calcutta where the food is so delicious and spicy. And now you have to live on food with no salt, no, you know, just bland, just like that. But that got, took me a few months to get used to. Then, but the yoga and stuff was very deep. The first thing I was taught there was the cleansing, the kriyas, yeah. You know, how to swallow the claw, how to send the tube through the nose, how to chew the mouth, how to we take the turmeric stick, yeah, push the turmeric stick down, clean the esophagus like that, pull it back up, uh, far out. Things I, you read in yoga books, you don't see in the book. Like, whoa. And, so yeah, that's how I live like that. And then every six months, me and my friend, we had to go come out of the mountains and go into Nepal to get a visa because we only had six months visa into India. 
to go back and forth Nepal, India like that. And then I, one year I came down and my teacher sent me to the, I went to the, anyone familiar with the Bihar School of Yoga? It's Bihar, Bihar? It's Bihar. Bihar. Oh, Bihar. Yeah, it's the, it has the, the only yoga university in, in India where you can get a degree in yoga. Yeah. It's northeast of India. So I went there and then I saw why my, my teacher sent us a cousin, the Himalayas. You learn the techniques. But to teach it is a whole different thing to the Western world. But in Bihar, Satananda Swami and my teacher had lived with Satananda way back in like the 60s in a cave together. So they were good friends. So when I got and I saw Satananda presentation of how he can teach the Kriyas to the West and so I went there and stayed there for three months. Then I went and then I went to Mayapur. Landed in West Bengal where is a place mother of devotion. And then when my visa was up, then I went to LA. And then I think that's when I met Joshua the first time about maybe Time 20 years ago, like 20 years ago, Joshua was visiting LA and he was giving a lecture on the Bhagavad Gita and I thought, okay, I'll go here because it was a Sunday, on a Sunday evening, I'll go chill out and that's, I remember your lecture then. And then from LA, I was in LA for about four or five years and then I went back to Asia and then I was in India. I was supposed to live in India for five years. I got a five-year visa, but then it got back to India and it lasted only for maybe six months. I got an invitation to go teach in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was only supposed to go to teach for two weeks. It turned into another five years. Hong Kong was my base, and I would just teach in Japan, China, Taiwan, like that. And it was close to India, so I'd go back to India, back and forth. And then, yeah, I was in Asia. Then after that, I went to Australia. And then after Australia, landed in New York. And so here I am. And I just came back from the Himalayas. I was, because every year I go back, visit my teacher and friends. And I take students with me to, on pilgrimage. This time we went to Udaipur. Has anyone been to Udaipur? Udaipur is the, so it's the royal white city of Rajasthan. And it's just so beautiful. It's like the Venice of India. Just beautiful. The, the king in the 15th century, he used to have, it's called a lake palace. In the middle of a lake, he has this huge palace. Now it's transformed into a hotel. That's where all the wealthy Indians have their weddings and it, all the famous movies that they go shoot in Rajasthan, they shoot there in Udaipur. Was it 007, James Bond, the yeah. first one? Yeah. Is it Sean Connery or was there? So it's a famous place, so take, took them there. Then we went from there, we went to Brindavan, the birthplace of Lord Krishna, the speaker of the Gita. And they'll pilgrimage around Brindavan for three days all the nice holy lakes and everyone who comes to India for the first time even though they're into yoga 
everyone wanted to go to the Taj Mahal. <laughs> so we took a trip out to the Taj Mahal of Agra and it's a beautiful tomb. Has anyone who's been to the Taj Mahal? It's a beautiful, beautiful monument. It's considered one of the world's seven wonders of this world. And it's the the king had built it for his wife when his wife passed away to show his expression of love. So when you go in there, it's uh, her tomb is beautiful and big. And when the king died, they buried him in the same place as well. But his tomb is just a little something on the side because the Taj Mahal was for the queen. So the, both tombs are there. It's a beautiful garden, beautiful place. And after that, I took all the students to Rishikesh. Rishikesh is the foothills of the Himalayas. And about 150 years ago, there was no trains to get to Rishikesh. There were no roads to get there. And Rishi, Rishi means the yogis or those on the spiritual path. So it was a place where they would live. So if you want to get there, you had to, from New Delhi, you had to walk. So some yogis, they still do that walk. They go on that walk. But now you can get there by Air India, express trains, buses, and you get there and it's a beautiful place. It's where the Ganges flow through and you have, in New York, we have a Chase Banker doing read every corner, right? So in Rishikesh, every house is a yoga ashram where you can go do yoga. You see everywhere, yoga, bandhas, bujas, pranayama. Of course, it's become commercialized. It doesn't mean that all those places are bona fide. There's a lot of quacks out there too. Because they see Westerners come and it's easily gullible. So there's a lot of, you know, but there's, there's still a lot of beautiful ashrams there. The great Shivananda Swami's ashram. Um, Parmaniketan Swami ashram is there. Yeah, his place is there. A lot of beautiful places where you can go and just meditate and do your peaceful yoga and meditate on the Ganga. Timeless. That's where a lot of caves are there, where a lot of previous yogis used to meditate. And when you visit their caves, you can feel that spiritual vibration still present. So one of the things we did there was to go to a few of the great yogi caves, the caves where they would go and meditate. It's beautiful. And then we came back to Delhi and then everyone went back to wherever part of the world they came from to join. Chara, when is your next trip to India? When, when might our friends here at Sunset Gita have an opportunity to go with you next time? When are you going to do that again? I do it once a year. So next year, middle of September. Mm -hmm. Same time like this year. Okay, so just something to note in your 2013 calendars. Yeah. Let me ask you a few questions, if I may. Um, you've known yoga from the roots of the culture in its natural setting where it's practiced and taught as it has been for thousands of years. You've also acclimated to a Western orientation 
of yoga. What would you say are the greatest mm, differences between the very traditional way of teaching and practicing yoga and the way we encounter yoga here in America or in other Western countries? The biggest difference is in the West, we move through the yoga asanas very fast. People love to move through the, you know, when I was learning a pose, sun salutation sometimes, one sun salutation is one hour. In other words, five minutes per posture. There's 12 postures in Surya Namaskar. The first posture, Pranamasa, and you stay there, and you meditate on the heart chakra. You meditate on the prana, the breath. Then your second posture, Asta Uttanasana. So that's how I was trained. You, it's a more of a meditative, going deeper into the practice. Here, I get one hour to teach a yoga class. If I was to just teach one sun salutation, no one would come back. So I had to adapt to understand that in the West, people love movement a little faster. And I also try to present more of the traditional Kriyas into my class so people can experience them. Like, this is, this is how I was trained. If, first hour of my training, I would do things like this. Just to loosen the limbs, limbers, loosen the limbs. This was what we did. And with the breath, yes? Eye exercises, up, down, left, right. Today, that part of yoga has been quite drifted away. Everyone wants to move into the most advanced pose when yesterday. So everyone thinks I have to race through my poses. So, But I understood the longer we hold the poses in the, with breathing properly, my body, because I, I have a genetically muscular. So when I got to the Himalayas, my other Indian friends, they were like ballerinas, ballistic. They can bring both feet behind your head without the hands. Just, yeah. <laughs> I'm not gifted like that. I'm genetic, so to learn that, and then but with time and with practice and patience, I could, my body transform into the advanced poses. But I learned it more on a meditative side. And each posture that we would do, would, we would meditate on one of the different psychic centers to bring out a certain emotion of the psychic center. That's what the poses are there to do for us. Like, what's anyone's favorite yoga asana? Let's hear one of your asana. Headstand. Yeah. Headstand. So we would do, we would, again, remember when I said heads, when I saw those yogis initially, their head was buried in the sand. Foot was up. And they would stay there all day long. How they did it, I couldn't conceive of it initially. But then I learned the techniques of how to do it. How the, we do intense pranayama, where you learn to just stop the outgoing and ingoing breath. And then the muscles develop, and your breathing were very gentle. So no sand goes into the nostrils. If you, go, if you put a Westerner there, they'll... 
So there's a technique of just holding, just minimal movement of the lungs. So you learn how to be into your headstand, and headstand is the, to meditate on the crown chakra. And the, the head is considered where we practice the quality of humility. You should develop humility. In our culture, our head gets bigger pride. Yoga is reverse of that. When you put your head to someone's feet, it's a sign of respect. So we're putting the head on Mother Earth. Means the prana from Mother Earth comes up into the head, head chakra and opens this quality of humility for us. So every posture was like the, how I learned. Of course, if I try to teach like that in the West, it's not. I had to teach myself to teach in the West when I got to Hong Kong. Everyone was like, okay, this is, you know. I tried to teach like that initially and no. So. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, what, what, what seems to be the resistance to learning the deeper dimensions of the poses? Because also in the Himalayas, yoga, the culture of yoga is, is, was built on connecting the self well, it, the way how it's the self with the supreme self. So that was the underlying practice that I should make a connection with the divine. And I think in the West, the spiritual part of yoga has been removed a bit. I mean, once I was at a yoga conference in India, in Rishikesh, and a lot of old yogis were there. One elderly yogi, he was, I think, and he could say, because he was contemporary of Mr. Iyengar and Mr. Patabi Joyce, that's their age limit, their friends. But he made a statement, which I, don't, I, could, I could never make a statement like that. And he's also Indian, but he made the point that Yoga came to the asana practice. What happened, what Mr. Joyce and Mr. Engar did, they, when, they, when the Westerners came to India, they understood that Westerners might not be attracted to the spiritual part. So they only gave a part of yoga, the asana part, without the spiritual depth. It's not that they couldn't, they were just trying to be adaptable for the needs of the Westerners. So the most popular yoga that came into the Western world is from South India, from Mr. Joyce and Ashtanga and Ayenga. I think a lot of the branches came from those. So at that time, that was attracted to the Westerners. And I think Mr. Joyce and Mr. Ayenga didn't emphasize the spiritual side because the Westerners were not prepared or ready for that at that time. Whereas other yogis who left in there, like say someone like say Swami Vivekananda, they came and they presented philosophy just as yoga. No asana, nothing. Just philosophy. So certain people got attracted to philosophy. But if you have a philosophy class and you have an asana class, which class will be more filled? Asana, right? right? Yeah. So, 
And I think that's, a, that's the way how yoga evolved into the West. So it's that part of the spiritual was kind of minimized and more emphasis was on asana. And in one sense, it's good that it came that way to the West in one sense because we don't have the body type to just sit down and some of my practices, some that we had to meditate some 24 hours without moving. I mean, who can, with a Western body? It took me three and a, two and a half years before I could do that thing. You know, the, in India there's a lota, right? So we would get the lota with Ganges water and we would put it on our head. And the goal, once a week we would do this, to try and sit still for 24 hours. Now I came from the West. After like 10 minutes, ooh, that pot fell and my knee and back and neck didn't last. So I understood why that, that part of yoga is so challenging. But then I started to practice. And then I would saw these young yogis. They were like 14, 13 years old in Padmas and Lotus with their matted hair. Young boys. And they would do it 24 hours. I was like, do that I'm gonna do this so every week once a week I tried I tried I tried I tried after about two and a half years it came so I had the time frame no and I and I had the time I didn't have a job I didn't have to go work I didn't have in the west we're working you know so if we can even just do one hour of asana that's a lot already right so I think that's this, so the spiritual side was separated just so that we can get a start. Because if you tell people, don't do this, don't do that, people won't start. But we are physical in the way. So when we start something that's physical, it's so easy to get us moving. Right? So, yeah. And I think now, like now, how much has yoga coming, is coming back more and more to the spiritual side now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. How much, like 20 years ago, you do kirtan? That was weird. Huh? Yeah, 20 years ago, it was weird. Are you a cult? What's going on here? Now, you go to any yoga studio and kirt, music, because yoga is from music. Yeah, a lot of, a rich part of yoga culture is mantra, is music, the sitar, the tabla, the, the you know, they're, we're, it's a spiritual journey to awaken, the path of devotion. So now it's coming back more and more to that spiritual side. And it's beautiful to see, like, you know, everywhere I go, you can, now, you can even, you know, I give workshops on, cleansing sometimes, just on the kriyas. Someone wants to come swallow a cloth, four feet cloth long. Jean did it. <laughs> you know, who wants to swallow a four feet cloth? And then, you know, so now even that part of yoga is getting more and more popular. So I think the other aspects are coming. It's coming back, it's, but it's, it just happened that we were attracted to the First. I get to put you on the spot here. Um, is there one yoga exercise that you'd like to bring us through, to take us through, that would do two things? One, 
um, give us a flavor of how you present a particular asana or yoga exercise of some kind, and then how you can describe that deeper dimension that you've been relating to and describing for us that seems to have been estranged. <laughs> so would you do that? I can improvise, yes, why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, this is a very flexible, willing group here. Okay. I'm sure they'd be appreciative for getting some insight. Let's do Pranamasana, first posture of sudden salutation. Everyone, let's stand. <laughs> Everyone's body is different, so if you can bring your toes together, great, heels together, great. If you can't bring the toes or heels together, you can keep them slightly apart, but make sure they are parallel. They are not one in front of the other. Parallel, but. And I'm going to lift the sternum gently, roll the shoulders back. And then inhale, exhale, pranamasana, palms up the heart. And I want you to lower your eyelids so that you're looking gently, gracefully towards the fingertips. They're semi-open, your eyelids. They're not closed and they're not fully open. Automatically, the brain wave starts to shift and moves into the theta state. Become aware of the breath as it enters the nostrils. Become aware of the breath as it leaves the nostrils. The physical body will only move into the asanas if we have this prana entering the body and the used prana leaving the body. As I inhale, I'm inhaling the fresh air, the oxygen. Along with the air, I'm also inhaling the prana, the energy of the sun of the universe into the cells. As I exhale, I'm exhaling the used air, the carbon dioxide, and the used prana out. My palms, my thumbs are touching my breastbone. And naturally with my breath, the breastbone, the ribcage will make a small movement up and out. As you exhale, the breastbone make a small movement in and down. Just be aware of the breath in the ribcage. As I inhale, the fresh prana enters my lungs, and with every heartbeat, as my heartbeat pumps, 
the exchange of my oxygen from my lungs using the vein, this prana using the oxygen comes to every cell of my body from the tip of my fingers, the crown of the head, all the way down to the tip of the toes. Make that union with the heartbeat and the breath. See if you can identify the heartbeat in the chest. And the yoga culture teaches to every full inhalation and exhalation. The adult in perfect health should have around four heartbeats. See if you can find your pulsation of the heart. the prana flows, the blood flows through the veins, the arteries throughout the whole body. The yogis explain that energy travels through the nadis or the subtle nervous system throughout the whole body. So all these systems, all your veins, all your arteries, they're in constant motion as the air enters, energizes the heart. Pranamasan awakens the heart chakra, the heart space, the psychic space, the vortex of energy where this gross and subtle body meet in the heart region. The first emotion out of the heart the culture teaches is love. And this love allows us to become grateful to our breath. This love for ourselves brings us grateful for the heartbeat. Watch the heartbeat, watch the breath with arm reverence as if it is the first time you're experiencing that. Feel the prana flowing through the fingertips. You should be able to feel a warmth, a certain magnetic pull. And this warmth, this magnetic pull is generating from our spiritual self who resides within the home. 
the only reason this body is animated or the breath and the heartbeat takes place is because we are within it. We are animating the heart, we are animating the breath. As we become aware of this breath and the heartbeat, we find ourselves developing more and more of a self-love for ourselves. The more we can love ourselves, the more we can start to love other living entities. Every heartbeat, imagine the emotion of love coming out more and more. And as you inhale and as you exhale, see that love moving throughout your entire being all the way down to your toes. The heart chakra governs with, with a mantra, yam. Pronounce of Nath Yoga, yum. of Ajapa Japa chanting the Yum mantra with your breath, allowing the mantra to help the mind to stay with the breath, stay in the present moment. spiritual being, we all have many beautiful divine qualities. One of the qualities of the Atma, the spiritual self, is compassion. I want you to remember a time when you did an act of compassion in this lifetime. An act of compassion is an act of the Atma coming out of the heart, an act of love to assist a fellow living entity with no desire for anything in return. Remember a moment in this life when you did an act of love from your heart, from the heart chakra. Exhale slowly. 
here's what I find so fascinating about them. I don't think for myself that I've ever spent that long in pranamasana. And I know that it doesn't happen in yoga classes. Because as you say, you've just eaten up half the class. So there's no opportunity for that. But what you did was to provide an opportunity for deriving so much more from that one asana. You also managed to work in some very Bhagavad Gita philosophy that you don't usually hear, and there's no opportunity to hear when you're going so quickly through the different asanas. You're connecting the gross and subtle bodies, talking about the atma, the qualities of the atma, how love is released through pranamasana, how compassion is released through these are qualities of the self. Yeah. Many, many really wonderful, fine points that don't usually come out. And the yoga is understood. Any pose, you can read samadhi in any pose if you master that pose. So the, every pose is a meditation. Every pose is darn concentration. Every pose we do pranayama. Every pose, so you you can do the eight limbs in every pose. Mm-hmm. Now I've never heard that before. That that's a revelation. Yeah, that's a revelation. Yeah, every posture you can do the eight limbs of yoga. Because you have to do the pose, then you have to breathe. Then the yogis also practice their concentration. They're done. And as you start down, you naturally are in pratyahar. You're not out there. And then with the concentration, you move into down. And eventually, the yogis can meet the Supreme Being, Paramatma, right in any pose, if you, to the degree you go deeper. So that's how the yogis, they practice. Most of them want to event them, as you read in the Gita, they want to meet Paramatma. Yes, the four-handed form, the super soul. So that's their, their goal and their journey for this life. Yeah. The yogis of the past, they never used to you know, jump around in the poses. They would accomplish the pose and use the pose for meditation, take them through the eight minutes. Like when I was learning Yoga Nidra Asana. Yoga Nidra Asana is both legs behind the head on the back. Yeah? The one on the back when you're lying down and you're like that. You had to learn to sleep in that pose. Your body had to become so flexible, so comfortable that that pose is... So every pose you can use. And, and that's why accomplished poses. They're called, and it's called Asan Siddhi. It's a level of practice you get in your Asan where the, the, the power of, this, of the Asan allows you to experience the other limbs of yoga. So that it's possible through the proper execution 
of even the most fundamental or basic pose yeah. to access the deepest levels yes. of yoga realization. Yeah. 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 That's how I was taught. Any pose. That's, that's why in India, you, if you go to India, you see someone, you somebody just in tree pose. That's, how, that's his pose for the rest of his life. He's always in tree pose. But he's experiencing all the eight limbs in that pose. It's sometimes said in the bhakti culture that just chanting one name yeah. with full heart is Everything, full realization. Yeah. So in a similar way, yeah, one pose. Yeah. And that's the thing, in, in the West also, yeah, I mean in the mountains, certain yogis, they, a pose just comes so graceful for one yogi, that's their pose, that they do their meditation. Normally, it's the seated posture, yeah, the lotus, and they just sit, they, they don't do all the, the handstand and all the, they did that, they do that, but unless you can meditate in it, they don't waste their time with it. They really, it's more of a meditation for them. I'm going to open this up to so give you all a chance to ask Yogi Chiru questions or maybe some share some of your own experiences just from the one pranamasa that we did here today. Yes, share. Um, I'm really amazed at how much calmer my body got in just such a short period of time. And my head actually feels different. It's like there's pressure that's off of my head now. Yeah. And my mind is not shattering as much. Because that's, that happens naturally when you practice the different limbs and the poses because you're fine-tuning your mind at the breath. The breath brings the mind in the present moment and then to the heartbeat. See, initially we meditate on the breath to bring the mind in the present. But the yogis, we eventually give up the, the concentration on the breath and we go to the other thing that's with us from the time we came into this world, the heartbeat. So the yogis utilize these two things, either the breath or the heartbeat, and they go back, they switch back and forth. Because when is your heartbeat taking place? Yesterday or tomorrow? Good. So if you can attach the mind to the heartbeat, the mind is in the present moment. And when are we breathing? Yesterday or tomorrow? So the yogis understood there is a natural, to every breath, for the regular person, there's four heartbeats. And what the yogis try to do, we try to bring that frequency down. Maybe to, to every inhalation and exhalation, we can try and slow that four, bring it down to three, to two. So then you're more in tune with the, the heartbeat, with the sound coming out. So naturally puts in, it's a meditation. Yoga is a, yoga is a dance, it's a meditation. It's beautifully, joyfully done. It shouldn't be, uh, like I see these days, there's a lot of, anyway. <laughs> that's, that's our culture, we came from the West, so we need things like that to get, to get us started. But like I said, now it's coming around to back to the spiritual side. Study and mastery, what you found to be the hierarchy of yoga, um, and 
books that a person wants to learn that they can refer to? The hierarchy of yoga. In what terms? Well, I mean, uh, you know, Hatha, Raja, like that, but also um, if you want to learn other books, you can refer to. Um, if you already have a meditative discipline, but you're still wanting to practice all of the poses on that level, and it wasn't just about uh, the yoga, but it was also about you know being in very good uh, fitness and all those other things. Um, and if you had to make a routine for that, then where would you refer to get those points? The culture of yoga that I was introduced to in the Himalayas was is the culture from Lord Shiva and he was teaching this culture of yoga to his first disciple who is his wife Parvati and the first the first yoga he ever taught his wife was the yoga of how to find the self with the supreme self that's the highest hierarchy of yoga. That's the primal instruction to know who you are, who the Supreme Being is, and your relationship with them. That's the first thing he taught her. If you're going to, and I'm just trying to think of the book that that pastime is in. It's in one of the, um, One of the it's in Shiva Samhita, the Shiva Samhita, yeah, it's there, and it explains that yoga means union, and the union with the self and the supreme self. That's the yoga of which Shiva was teaching his wife, and then. A yogi who was in the form of a fish. He heard the teachings and he later repeated it. And that's how we have the Shiva Samhita. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, um, so, what I wanted to ask is, uh, your experience working with people throughout your career, um, and then now the people that you work with, uh, be it privately or in group settings or, or whatever, what do you notice is the one thing maybe about working with people in the West that they seem to struggle with the most? Um, you know, and I think stress is, you know, kind of a, a, a response you give, but when we go a little deeper than that, uh, what is it that you sense to be the spiritual side of yoga. I remember once I was teaching in LA and private class with like six, six people and I started the class with um, 
And this again, this was 20 years ago. Now it's different, right? Om, the universal song of the divine. And I remember one of the ladies said, none of that, none of that. Yeah. <laughs> none of what? Oh, it's just, uh, you know, I think in the West we have a f fear of our religious background and a fear that this might interrupt my spiritual growth or my beliefs and I think that's always a, always a, a, a issue because it's a different culture we are from a western culture and you guys from an eastern culture I think initially you people do their poses great but as soon as the philosophy, then people start to question, okay, this is a lifestyle, but it's different. It's, it's wait, wait, wait. How many people live like this before? Millions of people. And, but I think, so initially people might not be that uh, open-minded to understand that other cultures had ways to attain the same spiritual path that we go through in our culture. Like, I'm from Belize, so I had Mayan friends. And I remember, I grew up as a Christian, right? So I remember going out to my Mayan friend's house. This is the sun calendar and the moon calendar. And I'm thinking, this sun god, rain god. And I'm thinking, so that, in that same thing that I had with my Mayan friends, I see Western culture, when I started teaching yoga, that same thing and it's just natural because we don't know it's just uh, we're not aware of another culture so it takes a little while and then as the more and more people you, you do the yoga though, the beautiful thing is then you start to learn you know, because I think in the West, we like to learn as well. And I think we thrive on, on express, expanding our consciousness in the West. So initially, we have a little, but then more and more with time, things just unfold. Like now, I can look at my Mayan friend and think, okay, your parents weren't that cool, cool. Because you know, it, it, it just didn't resonate with my culture. No, I understand, yeah. So that's always the, that's what I see initially. The, we have our spiritual practice in the West, and we think that maybe I, this is going to inhibit, but it's not really that. It's, we can, it's described, yogis are like honeybees, or honeybirds. You can, you can learn from every living human being. It doesn't matter which culture they are from. So I think the more you do yoga, the more you awaken into that consciousness that we can learn from the lame man on the street. And so it's easier to understand the philosophy with time. It's like, you know, if you try and ask an someone from the Vedic culture, yoga culture, to try and understand our Western culture, it, it, they need time to do that as well. And so it's vice versa. Yeah.
They have time for uh, one or two more questions, and then Michael, you're going to do our tea, mm -hmm. and then we'll have our little big intrigue, and maybe just sit around together and yeah. get to know one another a little bit better. Uh, yeah, one question I had is actually um, sort of lends to what you just said about learning, um, because I really enjoy listening to you tell stories, and you know your mastery of language is awesome. Um, but uh, when you mentioned leaving school at 15, I'm wondering if your if, if you ever um, wonder if you ever missed out on anything not finishing uh, your like formal education in that way, um, if you would um, encourage other 15-year-olds in Belize to leave their school and, and go on the path you went on, or even if you're ever curious about going back to some kind of you know formal education, because like you said, it is I, I do like the upbringing I had with my parents was do your homework, don't miss school. You know, I, I was like afraid to miss a class, and the idea of dropping out of school was like that was like sacrilege. <laughs> that would be really too Obviously, it doesn't seem like it was any detriment to you, but do you ever wonder um, if you had, what would it be like if you had finished school? A very good question. There, there were times when I was in the mountains, yes, when I was thinking, man, I should go back to school. But then I was learning so much, I was learning so much up there, and that became my school. And then, when I start, came out of the mountains and I started to teach yoga, I understood, and then also understood, see, I was young, and I was a fanatic. I was passionate about yoga. And fanaticism in anything isn't good. So I was an example of a bad yogi. <laughs> I was a fanatic. I, so now I look back and I think, had I had more of a, if there was like a yoga ashram in my country, where there was like a senior yoga guru, or if I was to, I would, I would have given me, I would have loved to have another exp, uh, guidance to say, <coughs> stay in school, <laughs> finish your school, because you never know, you can use your education for future. But my karma was not like that. My karma was like, it just came at the right time, the right place, and I left with it. But for me, now, if I'm going to give an instruction to someone, I understand. If, see, I went deep into yoga, so deep, that when I came out in the West, it was difficult to survive, to make a living out here. Right? And, I, and it questioned me, should I go back to school or can I just be who I am with this culture and who, who, who I've grown into? Can I survive from this? And it, I question it a lot of time. And, but so far, I've always, I'm happy with what I'm doing. Yeah. But yeah, there's, and there's no hard and fast rules. If, I live life because I have this deep, deep root understanding that the man up there, you probably hear this from Joshua, the man up there, he's feeding the elephants and he's feeding the ants as well. 
if I'm genuinely doing something positive for this, for myself and for the planet, which I'm putting my dedication into, I'm not that fearful of not surviving. See, I think what comes into the mind is, how do I want to live? Do I want to live comfortably? Or do I want to live in excess? And I can live comfortably with where I'm at. But I wouldn't give that instruction to a kid. I would tell a 15-year-old who is in school right now, finish your school. See, yoga, it, and again, yoga was not just like something I did once a week or three times. It, it overtook me. It was like, I was in a culture where I could have died any second. And just to give you a look, my soccer team, 23 players on that team. When I went back to Belize the first time after so many years, out of 23, 16 of them have died. So that's, so I had that or I had this. So it was my, my frame of mind, my psyche where I was at. It was a way out, away from that. So if, you, if, if a kid doesn't have that kind of scenario, where you're in America, your first world country, you're, hey, you're, and the upper, hey, do that. But I was in a situation where, had I keep chilling out with, hanging out with those friends, oh, man, I probably wouldn't be here today. So it was, you know, it's, everyone is unique and different. My situation is unique. It worked for me. It's not going to work for everyone. Would you please join me in thanking Yogi Chiru for having come and been with us this evening? Thank you. I'm sorry, say again. Donations. The classes paid for by donations. Oh, yes, you're invited. Can we please give some money? A dollar, five dollars, 25 cents. We'll take what we can. And also, Rodney, I saw you had a hand up. Hold on to your thought, and after the RT, we'll have a chance to sit with Charu and talk, talk some more. So join us. We, we end our classes with the RT ceremony, which is an offering to Radha and Krishna, divinity and the tradition of the Gita culture of God in male and female form. And so you're welcome to join us up at the altar. See so we play um, a recording of what is called Brahma Samhita. It's in the. I don't know if we have the prayer books here. This is a recording of the first poem of creation by Brahma, the first created being. It was recorded, interestingly, by George Harrison back in 1970. And this is the recording that you'll hear as Michael performs the artsy ceremony. You're, you're going to do the contra, or should I do the contra? Teacher.
that's the Arti ceremony. Thank you for joining us in the Arti ceremony. And this evening, uh, we have, uh, what, uh, what are they called? Skilled, what? <laughs> Snickers.